Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. Uh, I'm Rodney. Over there is Steve. Hi. And uh, we're back, episode two of the new season. You'll probably notice that it's a couple weeks after the first one. That's just the new posting format for the discussion stuff for a while. Coronavirus just kind of fucked everything up. Yeah, that and and it's it's given us a little bit of time to digest things as we yes as we peruse them instead of like running pell mell into it. Oh, but rest assured, we will still be running pell mell. <laughs> as today we talk about the jewel in the skull, the nineteen sixty seven novel from Michael Moorcock. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Michael Moorcock and this particular book, Steve. Well, Michael Moorcock is a British fantasist. Fantasist. Famous for his Elric books. Everyone loves Elric. Everyone knows Elric. Come on. Everything is Elric. Um, (laughs) But Michael Moorcock was a prolific motherfucker is a prolific, prolific motherfucker. He is still alive and well. He lives in Texas. His influence knows no bounds. Um, chances are, if you have played a fantasy or science fiction role-playing game, a video game, watched a science fiction or fantasy movie, um, somewhere in there, there's some Moorcock DNA. Mm-hmm. Mixed in with, uh, so it's all mixed up with that uh, Robert Howard and Clark Ashton Smith shit, too. So yes. The thing about Moorcock is his, he was one of the new wave of British um, science fiction authors. I almost said heavy metal. Right. <laughs> He's the Iron Maiden. <laughs> of science fiction. From of science from fiction. In a way, he is, though. His was a rebellion against the tropes made famous by Howard and um, and Fritz Leiber. Mm. Uh, he he took those and kind of inverted them and turned them on their heads um, to give you um, weak heroes instead of um, heroes who are good at everything. You have heroes who are pretty good at most things, but are f- are have faults mm. um, and weaknesses, um, kind of like yellow to a Green Lantern, <laughs> or wood. Since we're or talking, wood. since we're talking about like Golden Age type of stuff, right? Well, his was his. He was writing around the the Silver Age, right? Right. Uh, this particular 60s. book, Jewel in the Skull, was nineteen sixty seven. Right. It's actually one of his first uh, Eternal Champion books, which was his other big claim to fame. Uh, was that he had this uh, story cycle uh, that you had um, the same, I guess, character, the same, they called him the eternal champion, who was reincarnated over and over in different, um, different worlds, different periods of history, and was doomed to do the same thing over and over again. Mm. Uh, Elric was Elric is the most famous of them all. Um, Coram, who so Elric is kind of like his Conan, right? That's the prehistory of Earth, right? And Coram, another popular one, is uh, kind of like the fading of the old gods. So he, he is like the last of the elves mm. in in like Cornwall. I think it was in Cornwall, um, and it it kind of like ushers humanity into the modern age and Hawkmoon, who we're talking about is the post-apocalyptic version right now this is set on an earth far 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 in the future some nebulous time past now or now then Almost like a uh, Thundar the Barbarian type of situation. Right. Um, which feeds into my love of this genre. This, it's not quite Dying Earth. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it's close. <laughs> right, right. It's uh, it's a little more. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not quite dying earth. It's like earth in, it's still kind of in its prime, so to speak. You know, it's not, it's not the new sun type of earth. No, this is where humanity had reached the brink of its own existence and clawed its way back. Um, so you have a situation where you have a super science that people have lost the knowledge of and are just rediscovering gadgets and things. And mm-hmm. it's considered sorcery. Right. Um, that kind of setting. So it's very, uh, it's very, it's, it's akin to the dying earth. Cause you have a lot of that in Jack Vance and Gene Wolfe, but you just don't have that. Um, the environmental catastrophe that goes along with it. Right. The bleakness isn't there. Well, not not in the setting. The brutness right. is there because of the antagonists. Right. <laughs> so in, in this situation, you have... Um, it's actually a reversal of the situation from World War II. Mm-hmm. Where uh, Grand Breton, the... the uh, they're the, the big bad. Mm-hmm. Um, they have conquering armies that have swept across Europe... Uh, are going to invade Asia Communista. Right. <laughs> and may even threaten Amerak, the land across the ocean. Mm-hmm. Which has apparently been in some type of stasis since this great calamity. Yeah. So um, this whole thing is happening and it is being controlled by the forces of destiny, mm-hmm. which in this case, is um, embodied in this mysterious object called the rune staff, um, which right. also comes up um, in the different eternal champion stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is the big one because the jewel in the skull is the first book um, out of four or seven, depending on um, how, how you count it, of the high history of the rune staff, mm-hmm. where Dorian Hawkmoon the German is right. the uh, is the protagonist, right? And we have the the basically it's the rise of the British Empire again, right? But really evil. <laughs> yeah, like the one thing that struck me out is like if this was going to be a, a film. Grand Breton had those sequences would have to be in like put together by Tim Burton because it has that very Tim Burtonish thing going on where everybody's in masks. So it's so it's like dark but kind of whimsical at the same time. It's that odd yes. mixture. I I am almost one hundred percent certain that is on purpose, um, and I think that actually might be a diss against Tolkien in a, in a roundabout way. Because uh, Moorcock has, in the past, complained about how Tolkien is very, um, very country, gentle folk, um, folksy, but in a very naive sort of way. Mm-hmm. And I think what he does with Grand Britain is he takes that kind of sentimentality of of England right and turns it on its knee and you have like this the society that is insane like literally everyone is crazy mm-hmm. they everybody belongs to different um totemistic cults where they dress up like their like the animal that is the symbol of their cult you have wolves mm-hmm. uh, the big part of it, the the main antagonist is the leader of the wolf cult. Mm-hmm. Um, you have mantises, boars, pigs, uh, all, all yeah, all sorts of animals, and they all wear masks at all times. Um, and it's actually stated that they feel uncomfortable, like not human, without their animal masks. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty freaky. Um, the architecture is described as insane. It makes absolutely no sense compared to the the almost um, modern 
um, feel of, well, France in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, France is, it doesn't seem like it's changed altogether too much. And there are a few things, but it seems like it hasn't gone like completely industrially cancerous mm-hmm. as Grand Britain has. Right. Grand Britain and, is this kind of like uh, industrial revolution type of thing going on. There's a lot of, they have the, like a lot of the big buildings from probably modern London or built on the ruins of what we would think of as modern London. You know, large towers, you know, complexes of sorts. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he mentions London as being comprised mainly of just towers. Everywhere, Londra. as far as right, Londra. As far Londra. as the eye can see, towers on lining either side of the what, whatever he calls the River Thames now. Yeah, the the names I thought was were a little bit distracting because I mean, he changed them enough to let you know that this is our world, you know, in the distant future, and the language has changed up some, but. By and large, Londra, London, you know, I kept reading it as London because. I, I guess it, it's the other extreme where, with Gene Wolfe where you have like to play guessing games to mm-hmm. figure out where everything is in comparison. Right. This city is um, an anagram of. <laughs> right, exactly. Descriptive word for this city. Right. So. It, it it does get across the point that this is our world, you know, many, many thousands of years in the future. Right, right. It almost seems like the landscape has kind of shifted a little bit. Maybe the polar ice caps have melted in part of the great millennial calamity or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, obviously it was like some sort of nuclear war. Right. But... This, you know, it seems like the the landscape is familiar but different, right? And that's the the world, and that that he just and he, he plays a lot on our familiarity with Europe. Yeah, so. and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, mutated things um, mm-hmm. like animals that exist in our world but are just slightly different, like horned horses, giant flamingos, giant flamingos. Right? For some reason, they still have bulls. Right. Just standard bull. bull. Regular old bull. But they have regular horses too and, and um Well they had I think and, the horses and, all had horns. They were like And monsters. Yeah, kind of that, sort of they have that, that 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 um I forgot what it was. That he, that Count Brass fought at the beginning. Uh yeah, the the altered human. Yeah. Like a mutant sort of thing. Yeah, adding so, adding a, just a bit of uh, that Gamma World aesthetic in there. Yeah, but it's not over the top. It's right. very low key, mm-hmm. uh, which is cool. And you know, there's there's giants um, in the in the mountains between um, Europe and Asia. There's there's a race of giants mm-hmm. that exist. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's our world in the future, slightly different, just enough to keep you on your toes. Right. Um, Dorian Hawkmoon was the, uh, the Duke of, of Cologne, Cologne, right? Cologne, um, when Grand Britain, uh, sacked the city Mm -hmm. and, um, instead of torturing him publicly, like they did every other male in the world, they kept him. Mm-hmm. Because the greatest villain in Michael Moorcock's history mm-hmm. of anything he's ever written, Baron Meliadis, wanted revenge for a slight. Not even a huge slight. Right. Just a minor slight. Right. Right. <laughs> Count Brass. So- let's let's talk about Count Brass for a minute because you mentioned Moorcock heroes being imperfect and, and this sort of thing. Count Brass seems like he's kind of a dig on Conan the King. Yeah, yeah. Because he he can do everything. Yeah, he's an old campaigner um, who, who kind of backed into the position 
of of being the count of the of the Camargue. Right. Um, and he's jaded. He, he's been there, done that. And and his big thing, he, he wants order. He's sick of all the chaos. He wants order. And he feels that uh, Grand Breton actually could could achieve that. Mm-hmm. And who cares about their insanity and the suffering they're going to cause? Because in a couple hundred years, that's going to change. Right. His his uh his best friend and confidant, Bowfinger. <laughs> oh, gentle. Oh, gentle. <laughs> He's Bowfinger now. Um, is opposed to that idea, and he keeps very close counsel with Bow Gentle. Count Brass does, and. Bo, he and Bo Gentle constantly argue back and forth about uh, Grand Britain's influence in Europe. You know, what good is order when it's based in a in a madness sort of argument? Right. Which actually, um, it's funny, and one of the big themes, overarching themes of uh, the Eternal Champion works is... Um, you have the forces of order and the forces of chaos. Right. Um, Constantly at odds with each other. And oftentimes um, chaos is, is portrayed as evil Mm -hmm. and the law um, is portrayed as the good guys. And Graham Breton is kind of what happens when law gets a little bit too powerful mm-hmm. in a place. Um, it's just as bad because the order that they impose upon everyone is horrible. Right. Um, it's the, the order of the whip, the order of the crucifixion. Step right. out of line and um, you pay. Mm-hmm. Uh and and not to mention that you know they 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 include all of these old style methods you know even in invoking the Roman Empire at one point with the cruci- return of crucifixion, but Grand Breton is also the sorcery and super science guys uh, who perform a lot of human experimentation. He he really turns around and lays it thick on this kind of like fascist UK you know expansionism yeah he does um, and, you know they're horrible they're, they do everything that the Romans did you know every bad guy in history it becomes represented through this well, empire which is great because no one well not so not so much now but back then you didn't do that England were the good guys right <laughs> chivalry Um, holy grail king arthur you know they are the magical forces of good the beatles the The beatles the stones the who hey well no the who's on the side of chaos yes (laughs) millions of dollars of hotel damage tell us that the who are agents of chaos (laughs) The windmill is actually the eight-pointed star if you slow it down. That's right. <laughs> the arrows of chaos. So it's great that that the bad guys are the British instead of the right. German. Mm-hmm. Who are the good guys? Hey, right, right. Who are the good guys? So, so Dorian Hawkmoon is is has been taken prisoner, and after he was he's a special interest to Melodius because he was one of the few people to oppose Grand Breton and actually come out on top the right. first time. Um, yeah. He, he was canny. He was good. People rallied around him. And after Melodius ground Cologne into the ground mm-hmm. and, and, took Dorian Hawkmoon. He decided that Dorian Hawkmoon was the perfect agent mm-hmm. uh, to enact this plan of revenge um, against Count Brass. Count Brass basically, uh, Melodius paid him a visit to get him to, to ally with, 
with with the with the empire. Um, Count Brass said, "No, um, I'm neither going to fight for you nor oppose you." And uh, Melodius couldn't take that, but then he tried to kidnap uh, Count Brass's daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, which led which led to Melodius getting his ass handed to him in the dining room of Castle Brass. Yes. Count Brass kicked his ass. Right. Right. So now, now because because is, Count Brass can do everything. Right. Well, this is why um Melodius is my favorite villain, hands down, in, in Moorcock land. <laughs> because despite all this, the only thing he really cares about is getting his getting his comeuppance against Count Brass. He doesn't care about anything else. He, and throughout the course of, of these novels, mm-hmm. he he basically throws everything out the window for his revenge. <laughs> Past the point where it makes any sense. Mm-hmm. For for the good of Grand Breton, for the good of himself, he just becomes singularly obsessed with fucking over Count Brass and subsequently Dorian Hawkmoon. Richards. Yes, <laughs> yes, he's he's Doctor Fucking Do. <laughs> he even has Hawk armor Moon. and a mask. He even does that. He goes Hawkmoon. <laughs> I will have my revenge. The only thing he, he doesn't do is refer to himself in third person. Yes. I actually may have had a D&D character from back in the day that I named Meliodas. Well, I can I can see why. I can see why. Some sort of like what anti-paladin type of character or something? No, nah, I mean it was AD and D, so he just would have been like a, a a fighter or something. Nah, but I just I just like Melly. I just thought he was cool. So you know, thirteen-year-old Steve was like, "It's Meliodas, right?" Right. And and Meliodas is so consumed <laughs> with revenge and the desire for revenge that he swears upon the rune staff. That he will have his revenge. The rune staff listens, and the gears of the universe begin turning. Yes, because which you know, is really fucking cool. Because right. you you basically have this built-in prophecy, and you get like little bits of it mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of each chapter of each book. You have like the high history of the rune staff. You have a little bit of it of um of the prophecy and everything. Um. But it's never, it's never, he never comes out and says, this is the prophecy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is something, you know, there's destiny and everything going on, um, but you don't know what it is because it's up in the air. Right. Uh, so it's not like a Harry Potter situation where, you know, Harry Potter is going to be on top because it basically said it was, he was going to be. Right. His name's in the title. Right. You know, the book is Jewel in the Skull, not Dorian Hawkmoon Saves the World. Now, Jewel in the Skull, that's the other really cool thing about uh, Dorian Hawkmoon as opposed to Elric or Coram. Um, he, he has part of M- M- Meliodas' plan is to send him as a sleeper agent into Count Brass's castle. And um, uh, abscond with with um, his daughter mm-hmm. for him, and the way he's going to do that is he implants this jewel in his skull, like it says on the cover, uh, which they can they can uh, peer through and see what what Hawkmoon sees, and they have the best lip readers. <laughs> in right. all of Grand Breton who will be watching this so they can get half of the conversation right mm-hmm. so they they'll also be able to tell if um Hawkmoon's pulling a fast one right 
Now the catch is, and, and if he does this successfully, he's going to become um, get his his kingdom back, his his uh, dukedom. Mm-hmm. He will once again be um, in charge of Cologne, and he will, um, you know, under under the auspices of Grand Breton, but you know, he will still be their their leader. Mm. Um, if he doesn't do it, the jewel will, they will put energy into the jewel and it will eat his mind. Right. And he will become effectively a zombie. Right. I think this is great because you have this threat mm-hmm. just built in. Like the sword of fucking Damocles hanging over Dorian Hawkmoon throughout the entire book. Say, save for a few moments, uh, because once he reaches Count Brass's land, um, you know, and he's had lots of time to think over the course of the journey, and he decides, you know what, fuck this shit, I am going, I am not going to do this. Well, he does have pangs of conscience. Right, consciousness. Right. Um, right. He's also recovering from from a very severe case of like PTSD. Yeah, he has PTSD. He definitely has PTSD throughout this whole thing. Um, when the Grand Breton scientists, uh, the Order of the Mantis, look at him and do their their uh, Briggs Meyer tests on him, mm. they uh, discover that he is perhaps too sane. Mm-hmm. he's like super sane right uh because he's withdrawn into himself and he he has um his emotions have basically been shut off right uh, and he's really doing this in because it's something to do right right uh, he, he's not he you know he yes he gets his kingdom back and that's a good thing but it's not out of, of any more desire than he would um, being hungry and eating something. Mm-hmm. It's it's just an automatic thing for him. Right, right. He just kind of, yeah, sure, whatever. Right. You know, no it's protestation, and and even that kind of like unbalances Melodius because he's like, I don't know how to deal with you. Yeah, I mean, he was completely broken. Mm-hmm. I, I expected some broken. sort of resistance, Mr. Hawkmoon. And when he finally gets to the Camargue and Count Brass, who, like you said, is your Mary Sue character, mm-hmm. uh, automatically knows what's going on. Uh, he's seen this sort of thing before in his uh, sorceress research. Mm-hmm. Or he's heard tale of it. Right. And uh, between him and uh, Bowgentle, right, he thinks that they can uh, use this to their advantage. They can shut the machine off and and rehabilitate uh, Dorian Hawkmoon into the rebel that um, he's he famous for being. Yeah. Right. Um, because at this point, let's face it. Count Brass kind of does a 180 and decides that Grand Breton is a cancer and needs to be stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, especially since they are now gunning for the Camargue with the entire army at their disposal. Right. For over a petty vendetta. Yeah. Which is great. <laughs> yeah. That's that, that, that just that fact alone is, is, uh, you know, changes. Count Brass's mind. He's like, that's the craziest shit I have ever heard. Yeah. They're going to send their entire army down here because one guy's got a beef. And it's the Camargue. So a lot of people think that's obviously the the um, analog to the Camargue, mm-hmm. which is um, on the Mediterranean, south of France, in the delta of, I think, the Seine or the Rhone, one of those rivers. Right. So it's basically... Worth absolutely nothing mm-hmm. in terms of what their their um, aspirations are for world conquest, except that it's something that they don't own. Right. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, Grand Britain, Britons, uh, 
desire to conquest or conquer or ally with the Camarg is symbolic because well, if- the Camarg is a heavily defended region. It has, you know, by just by nature of existing, uh, is is an area that is free of their control. Uh, militarily, right. they they can't just really swoop in and take it uh, because it's better. But it's more advantageous to them if the last one of the last holdouts of Europe says, "Hey, yeah, sure, we'll join up with you." Right. It's it's more of a strategic win than yeah. the land itself having any value. Right. But even so, and you learn uh, later on, they have bigger fish to fry mm-hmm. than the Kamar. Uh, they're, they're, they're starting to, to uh, eye uh, Persia. Mm-hmm. They're, they're starting to, to set their sights uh, further and further east. And you know that that takes that's you know it takes supply lines it takes bases it takes a lot to do that mm. and they're going to go and fuck around in the Kamar because Meladius got basically slapped in the face and that's all that happened was he got slapped in the face mm-hmm. which is great <laughs> and then and then you have um, King Emperor Huan mm-hmm. <laughs> who who's like what thousands he's supposedly thousands of years old he's kept alive in this bubble of amniotic fluid mm-hmm. he's able to like transmit his thoughts psychically through a machine yeah so they describe him as like this this withered uh, fetus like thing mm-hmm. that's it's suspended in this globe and then he talks like a, a 20 year old adult because he has you know his voice is, is uh, transcribed electronically through speakers. Mm-hmm. He's like Siri. Right, right. Which is, and you and know, he's, which is he's totally on board. He's mm-hmm. totally on board uh, with doing this. You would think that the 2,000-year-old uh, god emperor, emperor of, of Grand Breton would um, have his ducks in a row and no what to do strategically throughout the the region. This is my goal is to take Turkey to do this. I need to do this, 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 and that. Oh, Meladius. Oh yes. Of course you could, uh, divert, um, who knows how much, uh, military power to your pet project. <laughs> well, well, initially the God emperor is cool because he <laughs> thinks that it, you know, just Dorian Hawkmoon is, the resources he's willing to divert. Look, I drug yeah. this guy out of prison, put a gem in his head. I'm going to send him down to enact my personal revenge while we focus our attentions elsewhere. Right, and you get on my, like, it's yes. like a James. It's like a James Bond. He's he figures it's going to be like some James Bond spy mission, mm-hmm. and it actually ends up like a James Bond mission, right? <laughs> because it, it he ends up sending the entire. A t- entire division or two divisions or whatever down there mm-hmm. to uh, to take this small bit of land in a delta that means absolutely nothing. Right. No, Mister Hawkmoon. <laughs> and and it, it is the entire mission is almost structured like an Ian Fleming novel, where where you know, Meladius is M, obviously, and you know Hawkmoon is Bond, and then he is over to Q branch. To get the thing put in his head, and he's like, "Well, this is, you know, this is, I am the scientist, you know, and you know, don't break the gem and do all this other stuff." And then he goes out on the mission, and he just once he gets to the Kamar, he decides that he's going to go rogue. Yes. Now, how they break Dorian Hawkmoon? How they cure him? I guess because uh, they don't really do it themselves, but. They know enough about science-y spellcraft right. to embed the proper hypnotic words into a poem mm-hmm. that Bogentle reads, which uh, basically puts Hawkmoon into a, a fugue state mm-hmm. where he, you know, it, it shuts him down so the jewel can't spy on them 
And then the second part of, of their plan to turn it down, because now Count Brass knows um, a thing or two, and he, he thinks he could take the life out of the skull or the jewel mm-hmm. for a limited time through his sciencey sorcery. And he, he it's great because he casts the spell standing behind Hawkmoon while Bojentle is in front of him pretending to read or pretending to have a conversation with him. Right. So he's just mouthing words and doing the, you know, the fake laughter thing. <laughs> and in the meanwhile, Count Brass is actually doing the work behind him. Mm-hmm. It's, right. it's great. It's totally like a spy novel. Mm-hmm. It is. And uh, yeah, and, now a lot of this is that's this is the point when it really starts when when Moorcock really kind of hits the stride with the pacing, uh, because once they once they break the control of the jewel temporarily, it allows them to. Uh, one and once because they know they're going to figure it out as soon as they can't get any more images they're going to figure it out, so right. it's like now it's time to prepare, and because they're going to come. It's going to be an excuse, you know the rebel traitor and it has allied himself with the last holdout kingdom of Europe. So it can only mean one thing. Big medieval battle. Yes. With with ornithopters and giant flamingos. And fire lances. Yeah. Which I haven't decided if those are lasers or if those are flamethrowers. I am describe them like flamethrowers. I've always pictured them as like flamethrowers, napalm. Mm -hmm. Like real real high pressure shit, though, because I mean, that shit, it's got a reach and it's got some accuracy on it. Also, think of when it was written, 1967, the height of Vietnam. Yeah, we're seeing, you know, Agent Orange and flamethrowers and shit like that. Yeah, so you're seeing that on the news. I'm 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 convinced that well, I mean, I, I picture him as flamethrowers, so Right, right. So we have our big battle sequence after that. Um Hawkmoon decides that uh he's gonna go in search of a cure for the jewel yeah, in so the skull. Supposedly in Persia there's this guy who um can can cut the jewel off completely from it, the source. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's cool because this is the part where Moorcock really builds tension. Right. Um, and he does it like believably. It's not, it's a plot device, obviously, mm-hmm. um, to have this hanging over his head. Literally. But he does it. But, yeah. <laughs> But he doesn't treat it um, arbitrarily, I guess. Like, a lot of times you'll have, um, oh, remember, you have a jewel in your skull, blah, 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 right? Right. There's constant little things reminding you right. um, that that this is a, a danger. And so when he finally meets this guy, um, you can, you feel the tension that at any moment now, it could it could turn itself back on and eat his brain, mm-hmm. right? Um, right, and he he conveys that not only through like description but through the dialogue as well. As this potential doom gets closer and closer to Hawkmoon, and he starts feeling more physical symptoms, his behavior gets more more and more desperate. Yeah, like he 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 actually fights harder traveling to Persia than he did uh, in the Kamar. Right, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of se- several sequences of battle where it's just, you know, he uh, he is fighting as hard as he can because it's either well I'm going to die or I'm going to die. Yeah, right. he's got nothing there, left to lose. There is a really cool sequence which uh, Moorcock has used similar uh, sequences in um, in Elric. I know. Um, where he meets his an ancestor of his mm-hmm. um, on the way, um, who is really 
just given in to every horrible instinct that that you have from from human as a human being he has basically sold him his soul for eternal life mm-hmm. um got the short end of the stick on the deal and behaves accordingly right right and, and uh, so and, we have that sequence uh with with his ancestor countryman um who is who is an immortal i did like that the reveal that was yeah i thought that was handled well uh, it's it's Morcock likes to have these like cosmic jests mm-hmm. um, in in his storytelling, and this is a really good one mm-hmm. where, where it, it's you know it's it's more or less you know the gods laugh at you, right? It doesn't matter what the fuck you do, you cannot get the upper hand no matter what, and the harder you try, the more horrible the result is going to be, right? Right. And then, and then you know, it follows up with a second punchline in, in that when you've given up, is when the the quote unquote gods intervene, right? Because we have the battle on the lake, where yeah, you don't, you don't fuck with with the Moorcock's chaos gods, you just don't. Yep. Bad. Just ask the Melnibonians, right? But uh, yeah, we meet the the warrior in what is it? Golden jet. Warrior in jet and gold. Jet and gold. Who is apparent? I imagine this character is like head to toe, full plate armor type of thing. Helmet obscured in the features. Black plate armor with gold highlights. Right. Or actually, I was kind of imagining uh, gold armor with black highlights. But whatever. You know who. At, at at Dorian Hawkmoon's weakest moment, he steps in and he's just like, "Yeah, okay," and and does practically the most badass thing ever, and just is able to pretty much just like wave their hand and people die. <laughs> he, it's it's funny because he's a Deus Ex Machina, and he basically says, "I'm a Deus Ex Machina." Right. <laughs> Greetings, I am Deus Ex Machina. Uh, he he says it, he's it's not disguised at all. Mm-hmm. He comes out and says, "I we work we work for the same um, power." And Hawkmoon says, "I don't work for anybody." And he goes, "Okay, kid." <laughs> I, I know you don't understand this yet, and everything will be revealed to you soon. But uh, yeah, you're kidding yourself when you think you don't work for no one. Yeah. So <laughs> it's just I I love these books. Um honestly out of all of of the Eternal Champion books that I've read, and I've read a lot of them, not all of them, but I've read a lot of them. Um I, I just come back to Hawkmoon um again and again, which is weird because I don't think Hawkmoon's a lot of people's first choice. Um in, in doing a little bit of research for this, um I came across like a blog where someone was claiming that Dorian Hawkmoon is actually the most boring of Moorcock's characters. Um, and, or bland. And I will say he's definitely not as broody mm-hmm. as like Elric is. Right. Right. Uh, and he doesn't feel as sorry for himself as Quorum does mm-hmm. because you got to remember at one point, Hawkmoon had his emotions burned out of him. Right. And suffers from PTSD. So right. you can't blame him if he if he doesn't uh, sit in jet black armor uh, with his rune sword talking about his lost love. Right, right. Hawkmoon <laughs> strikes me as kind of, uh, you know, the similar to like the man with no name type of character. Um. That, that sort yeah. of even temper, no matter what, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not necessarily boring, you know, because you don't necessarily, you don't always want a broody, you know, edgelord. <laughs> no, no. And, and there's plenty of broody edgelords to go around in Morcock's mm. multiverse. Right. Sometimes you just want, you just want that, that even keel type of character who goes in, 
you know, he's single minded. He, you know, he's got, a, a, you know, I, 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 I'm not going this way or that way. It's A, B, C to reach right. my goal. That's what I'm going to do. He kind of reminds me of Dudley Do Right. Kind of, yeah. Like, he no. <laughs> right. Uh, but but yeah, he's a paladin. He's single-minded. He does what he believes is right, mm-hmm. um, which just happens to be what is right in in context. Right, right. There is a, there is a bit of that Arthurian thing going on there that uh, he's kind of this Galahad type of character. And in, in uh, but way. but you know yeah, and he's not an edge lord. He's definitely mm-hmm. not Elric, right? Um, at all, and. Uh, the thing about Elric is Elric Elric is a completely different character. Elric is an agent of he believes himself to be an agent of chaos. Mm-hmm. He works for chaos. He worships chaos. His sword is a chaos sword. Um, and yet ultimately he works against chaos, right? And that's right. Elric's shtick. Mm-hmm. That's not Dorian Hawkwind's shtick. If it was, he'd be boring. Because it'd be the same thing. Right. The great thing about the Eternal Champion is he tells the 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 story from different angles, different character perspectives. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I like Hawkman's perspective because um, you are taking something like an Arthurian type of hero and putting him in impossible circumstances. Right. You know, right. he's he's not looking for the Grail. He's fighting against tyranny. Right. Yep, he's 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 chivalrous, you know. Yeah, and and that's one of the things. It kind of reminded me of of Galahad, uh, you know, with Count Brass being, you know, Arthur, and and Bogentil being Merlin, and and then Jet and Gold being Lancelot, effectively. Right. Yeah. I, no, I could dig that. I could totally dig that. Um, so here's the question. Okay. Are you going to read the Mad God's Amulet? <laughs> Which is the next book. Which is the next book. Well, now that I know what it is, I'll probably, I'll probably pick it up. Because I'll be honest with you, ladies and gentlemen, and Steve, uh, uh, this is the first Moorcock book I have ever touched. Dun, dun, dun. Say it isn't so. Uh, if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have just said it. <laughs> so now, the other question is, do you want Moorcock? I will not answer that question. <laughs> Yet I will leave that pause in the recording. Yeah, uh, I, I will say um, almost everything Moorcock touches is gold to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even for crying out loud, he wrote lyrics for Blue Oyster Cult and Hawkwind. <laughs> <laughs> yep. He's a multi-talented genius, um, and I first read this book when I was in high school or middle school, mm-hmm. and it was the edition that you have, which I think is at my dad's house somewhere. But yeah, that Daw nineteen seventy-seven Daw, yeah, yeah. Um, well, and even the cover of the edition that you have um, makes him look like a knight of the round table. He's yep. in full plate armor. Um, yep. It looks very medieval. It's a little misleading, actually, because it's not a very medieval book. Right. And he wears chainmail. There you go. There you go. That's see that sometimes I think that cover illustrators don't actually read the book that they're illustrating. Yeah. Well, th- those covers from those Daw editions could do no harm. They're fantastic. <laughs> Have you seen, you've seen the Elric ones, right? Uh, some of them, yes. Yeah, they're fantastic. <laughs> so, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. It is Jewel in the Skull by Michael Moorcock. If you have not checked it out, um, or or you've heard somebody else tell you that Dorian Hawkmood is boring, um... Fuck them and and go ahead and pick up this book. <laughs> go go find that person, unfriend them on Facebook because they obviously they obviously have no taste. 
Right, and then uh, go out and and find a copy. Actually, I found my copy on Etsy uh, from a from a used book dealer there for about four bucks. I think I think it was like eight bucks shipped. It is difficult to find um, legitimate uh, uh, electronic versions of these mm-hmm. uh, because Hawkmoon is not Elric. Right. Actually, it's hard to find. Um, legitimate versions of of a lot of more old Moorcock stuff. Um, well, I know, uh, from what I understand, they keep a very tight lid on that 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 license. Yeah, and and well, they should. Um, but uh, I do know that the Warlord of Air books, the Oswald Basketball books, are mm. coming out electronically. Um, in in December, as an omnibus, right? Uh, but that's neither here nor there. So yeah, go do some searching. Search up some like go on Amazon or Etsy or eBay and, and check your local library. Maybe they have some buried back in the stacks. Yep, get yourself a copy. Jewel in the Skull, fantastic book, especially if you like that that post apocalyptic. Um, aesthetic mm-hmm. you were actually comparing it to warhammer fantasy right yeah warhammer fantasy and 40k uh yeah warhammer 40k a lot of 40k um, gets uh is supposedly influenced by the elric books but it seems to me that the this the hawk moon books uh really had a lot of influence on like the the aesthetic of of 40k and even warhammer fantasy there you go. So even if you if you like uh, the Warhammer, Games Workshop's Warhammer, it's a well. Actually, if you had play a lot of uh, Warhammer, you probably have already read these. Mm-hmm. More so. than likely. So sorry, <laughs> Warhammer players who are listening, I'm behind the curve. Yes. <laughs> um, the only other thing I have to say is you got to keep thirty luck points. That's right. And we'll see you guys next time.